it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The Team Never Quit podcast is sponsored by Navy Federal Credit Union. You can now earn up to 1.75% cash back on all purchases with the cash rewards card when you sign up for direct deposit. Learn more at NavyFederal.org. All right, everybody, welcome back to the TNQ podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Luttrell. Every week, it's my job to fire you up, to ignite the legend inside of you, and to push you to your greatness. Join me every week as I take you into my briefing room with some of the most hard-charging people on the planet. They're going to show you how to embrace the suck of life, teach you the values of working your ass off, and charge through whatever life throws at you. This is the Team Never Quit Podcast. Podcast. So buckle up, buttercup. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Team Never Quit Podcast. We've got an awesome guest in store. How's everybody's week going? Good. Good. I'm tired. I am too. It's the heat. Awesome. I'm not tired at all. I got plenty of energy. It's, it's pumped it's up. Freaking good, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's in the summer. Kids are going back to school. Oh, that's why you're pumped. Hey, let's start this thing with a Patreon question of the day. If you could serve with any one of the A-team characters, who would it be and why? Oh, Murdoch. All day, especially off the last A team, if he was just like that guy. Uh, BA. I grew up with BA in the teams. <laughs> so he's going to be my go to guy, man. That's a good question. Donna, you got an answer on what that you one? Got? Yeah, TBI is kicking in. Um, so you got Face Man, Hannibal. We picked Murdoch and, Murdoch and BA. Face. Face. Yeah. Face. Face, Murdoch, BA, and Hannibal. Colonel, dude, when Murdoch's hanging on that rotor, when did it go around? <laughs> yeah, I guess Murdoch. Are we missing one? No, there's only VA face Murdoch and Hannibal. There's four. No, that's not right. There's we're missing one, aren't we? I don't think so. Murdoch, BA, Hannibal, face man. Boom. Don't ever question me. OG four. Who was the crazy <laughs> one? Murdoch. Murdoch. That's yeah. right. okay. That's right. Absolutely. What about you? Hmm. Probably BA. Right. And I was perusing through the, the shows that can't and Street Hawks on now. Like full the on full on series. You can get it. Buy it on your iTunes and, and I'll so you can and get I'll, it. I'll bogart it. Yeah, please. You buy it. I'll watch it. Hey, thank you so much for your Patreon question. Make sure if you haven't already, you joined us over there because we've got a lot of cool stuff coming y'all's way. Patreon.com slash team never quit. We're gonna allow you guys to start leaving voicemails that we can actually play and listen to and answer right here at the show. We've actually got a really cool community we're about to launch where you can actually chat amongst each other. We've got some sweet swag, a challenge coin, all kind of cool stuff. But let's get to our guest that we have for today. Donna Michaels has a distinguished career that begins serving in the U.S. Navy, followed by her 21 years in law enforcement. She's also the author of Courageously Broken, a memoir of overcoming adversity and conquering the battle scars of life. Welcome to the show, Donna. 
Thank you. Thank to you for so much for having me. It's an impressive honor to be resume. here. resume. Thank you. Thank you. It's funny. You don't like uh, plan stuff like that out. It's just, you know, one door closes, another door opens, and that's just kind of how it all plays out. So somebody asked me the other day, hey, have you do it because what I'm doing right now, they're like, did you plan on this? Like nothing I've done in my past on my resume was supposed to team me up to what I'm doing right now. It was just opening up in a door, open up a door and walk through it. Yep. So I exactly. totally, I totally what's, respect what's what on the resume as opposed to what you thought was going to be on there. Kind of like I have an idea oh. of what you wanted to be and how, how uh, you didn't know how it was going to, you were going to get there. And some of those bumps in the road were like, whoa. And then the other ones, but ultimately it got you where you wanted to be. Right. Oh, absolutely. You know, I'm not even close to, to uh, my career didn't pan out anything like I thought it would as a teenager. I mean, not even in the same universe. Um, and I, and I laugh and I go, I can tell you the last thing I ever thought I'd ever be with a cop. I didn't even like cops when I was younger. Let's go further and than I that. Was... Let's talk about right now. I mean, go oh, back yeah, when we were kids. It's like, Hey, you think this, we're going to be sitting here doing this? Uh-uh. I mean, not at all. This didn't even exist when we were kids. Nope. Yeah. yeah. Or author a book. I mean, I know not in a million yeah, years. Yeah, I didn't even like to read them. That's the this thing. I, <laughs> who could even imagine gotten, getting that done? No. Yeah. Well, I mean, for me, you know, know I, I was them. a yeoman in the Navy. So I typed a lot, right? <laughs> and then going into 20 years of law enforcement and typing thousands of police reports over the years, you know, I can knock out about over 100 words a minute on a typewriter. I, I can type On a typewriter. <laughs> so, oh my god did i just really say typewriter? yeah <laughs> back that up nice. i caught that <laughs> and, and make sure Man. there's some way we got to be able to amplify that word is there like that we have old typewriters yeah, in the sound, house we got sound, sound effects, effects. Yeah, <laughs> do we have one in here <laughs> i did my thesis in undergrad and on a typewriter i've been there <laughs> haven't i had something i was going to ask her right before we started talking about that too man <laughs> she said typewriter <laughs> oh, oh, and it's I, funny in the closet. I've got a 1960s old school the, manual, so I, and I keep it as a keepsake because it's an antique. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm we, we weird about that stuff. It's it's cool to see how far it's evolved, you know, into, into something like this. Okay, so I got a question for you. Okay, just real fast. Uh, I was my mother teaches the kids piano, and um, she was she could type really well. And I, I'm sitting there trying to learn it and just put, putting the letters on the key keys so it's like a typewriter. And I was like, so can you play the piano too? Because it's Me? Uh, no. Because it's all. all about this, it's the same thing. It's just the keys on the on a keyboard, just like typing. Yeah, but I think you gotta have that musical gene. Yeah, because in, my, a- my mom did. My mom played the church organ and my daughter plays beautifully, but that whole gen- creative musical gene just skipped me completely. I didn't you, get any of it. You gotta I, be able to read music. And because it's both hands, yes. So it's typing. You got to read music once. You have to read music dilemma. on both sides. Yeah, but people read code all the time and type. My point with it is, is it's, <laughs> does anybody catch what I'm going it. with that? No, not even. <laughs> you don't. You don't even see the, uh, any similarity on a keyboard with with letters on it. No. <laughs> no, no. You're right. You're right, Marcus. But like, I can spell, <laughs> but I can't read music. That's totally two different. Oh, oh, we're shit. a rabbit hole right now, man. I, Where do we just go? I love rabbit holes. I can spell, but I can't read music. Typewriter. Yeah, like, type, typewriter. <laughs> Donna, how did you get your start in the Navy? Well, back it up. Tell us where you're from. Where yeah, you, yeah, yeah. How, where you, how you grew up. I'm listen okay, to these guys. So I'm from originally from Florida, the Space Coast area. My, uh, my dad and my grandfather being my mother's father, right? Um, worked out on the uh, recovery boats that recovered the parts of the... Uh, launches oh the lunar capsules coming back cool yeah they came back into the ocean and they were on the recovery teams 
So that's how my mom met my dad. Were they, UDT, they were they UDT? Because they used to be the UDT divers that were doing that. My uncle, um, I haven't been able to confirm it. My uncle's uh, passed away. I was told he was a Navy diver, but I don't think he was UDT. Well, that, so that's who did a regular that. diver. Yeah. And then my grandpa was a World War II CB in Ooh. the Navy. Um, and he was more of like the boat captain kind of guy. And, uh, and I, th- I think my dad was like just basically a deckhand. I'm not really sure about that. Yeah, because back then the, the UDT guys when they were when they were UDT and they would be diver, it would, they would switch. You just they just didn't have the the, the standard team. So that's cool. What yeah, an odd, yeah, what an odd, cool to have a job, cool. right? Like, what do you do? Oh, I'm a guy that actually does. No one ever thinks about that. Like once Charles and Wilder, then what happens? Well, man, you got to get it out of there. That's pretty cool, yep. man. Yeah. So you're a third so. generation sailor. Oh yeah, that I know of. That I know of, yeah, maybe longer, Sucker. but it definitely started with uh, World War II for sure in my family. Mm, um, back when it was hard to be in the Navy. Say again. That was back when it was hard to be in the Navy. Yeah, my grandpa was the epitome of that. I I worshipped the ground he walked on. He was, you know, he had a saying, you know, I was in the Navy when the boats were made of wood and the men were made of steel. Oh yeah, yeah. like real sailors. Yeah. I had somebody say this. Like you, you, you can be call, you can call them out for not being a real sailor. Like they don't actually sail anything. Because it's powered by, you know, talking about so that. Remember how about that transition when they with them guys like you ain't no sailor. What are you talking about like a shipmate, a soldier, yep. soldier yep. on a ship. And he was a CB, so they they took um they took a took over the island of Guam and built what's now the Navy base there. So that Ooh. was when it was occupied by the Japanese. Oh, we don't go anywhere without the CBs. We love them guys. We have cousins that are CBs. They're our forefathers. We, we build. We fight. Them guys are awesome. You got one attached to you. They're a blessing. That's mm-hmm. cool. I bet Straight up. Awesome stories. Especially out in Guam, in the Pacific Theater. All right. Sorry. Go ahead. Anyway. So um, dad was 34. Mom was 17 when they got married. And uh, after 13 years, well, I was born in uh, 70. And he uh, worked contract work at the Space Center. He was a technical writer. I've got in the house some old uh, NASA memorabilia, including a huge a old binder of schematics of the original launch pad, which is kind of neat. Um, so a lot of that full stuff grew up around, saw the first shuttle launch, you know, of, of many. And then we left in 83 and we moved to BFE, North Carolina. And I, and I, I mean, BFE like miles from the nearest neighbor and, um, dirt road. You know, I had a three wheel motorcycle that I raced and wrecked on a ridiculous number of occasions. I think all those three wheelers. the ATVs. Yeah. Yeah. So, and you know, my, my grandpa, the same one I was telling you about, they had bought property on the mountain as well. So they were like our only neighbors and he would, he would get me out of so much trouble. If my parents found out about it, they would, I, I, my ass would have been beaten. I would never rode that thing again, but you know, I was kind of a wild child a little bit. And then, but my dad was, um, he was abusive. He was a paranoid schizophrenic. Uh, we didn't know that then. It was something that came out much later. Um, which, this is the know, one that worked for NASA? In my book. Say again? The one that worked for NASA? Yeah. Yeah. In their, in their 30-year marriage, he was uh, he worked only seven years. He, he couldn't, like every time they do a layoff, he was always in the first one to lay off, you know. And he never did anything wrong or criminal. He was just an asshole. So, uh, I mean, I'm not. We have them. They dad. exist. <laughs> Say again? They exist down yeah. here. Yeah. Yeah, he just his he just um he didn't play well with others. And um he 
anyway, mom was young when they married and she had the old, you know, Christian beliefs for better, for worse. I chose worse. That was my fault. And she stayed, she stayed with him because she didn't want me to come from a, you know, divided home. Um, I didn't know any better as a young child, but when I got into my teenage years and started spending time with other families and I looked at their families and I could compare it to my family, I realized, whoa, my family's jacked up. It's, you know, my, my parents got issues. So I was 13 when I joined, when uh, the Stark was hit. And I remember watching it on the news and coming from that passionate Navy background. Um, as far as I was concerned, there was no other branch of military. I mean, it was like army who Marines, what, you know, that was just, that was just my Navy, Navy, Navy. That's all I ever heard. So I decided joining the Navy would be a really good choice for me to see the world, get an education, get away from home. It was a really, really small town. Um, and I just wanted to get away. So that's, you know, that's why I joined the Navy. So I, that's where I, you was, came out of Carolina. Yeah. Left yep. Carol North Carolina, joined the Navy out of there. And then went to, you know, boot camp, a school, and, and then my, my, my four-year tour, tour. Was that your first time over uh, up to uh, Chicago for boot camp? I didn't go to Chicago. We had boot camp in Orlando. Oh. Females in 1989, well, uh, Orlando. Because it ended right shortly after that, right? That's when they pulled Clinton, the, Clinton administration in the 90s right. is when they closed, closed all down, the, uh, right. the bases and moved them all to Chicago. And you came in, when, when was it? 89? Uh, I went in in 89. 89 yeah. yeah. I got out in 93 and it was long, not long after I got out off active duty that um, everything started closing up. It was the mid nineties. Cause in the nineties that I remember when, when we were just coming out of high school too, but that was a great era. I mean, for the families oh, yeah. and boom, I mean, it was a wonderful time. I remember, yeah. but the, the, of course I'm an eighties child and parts of the eighties. Sure. And, I, you know, no, I get that. Right. Absolutely. 100%. <laughs> but, Big hair rock bands. And <laughs> yeah, that was it, man. I and I rocked the big, you know, Aquanet hairstyle. <laughs> we were talking about that the other day. I had to bring that back. The big, I mean, fronty thingy. <laughs> you could do the yeah. The, what do they call it? Bouffant. <laughs> Those things are awesome. So, but, but they were there was a there was a lot going on in the military in the nineties. Those that was during the storms, right? That's what we we call our guys the storms, the nineties guys. Yeah, Gulf. I was actually the shields in the, the storms Azores when the first Gulf War hit, and I was on duty at the Aswalk. And it, I had the uh, 20 hundred to midnight shift. And when I went into the Aswalk on a Friday night, it was dead. Like it always was. There was nothing going on in the freaking Azores, you know? And then all of a sudden it was around, I don't know, 10, 11 o'clock. The general of the base walks in, the skipper walks in, like anybody who's anybody on that base was, was storming into the Aswalk and checking in. And I'm like, Friday night, what the, you know, what the hell's going on? So my, my relief came in and where I was, there was no windows, there's no TV, there's no nothing. And you didn't get past that door without a TS clearance. So I had no idea what was going on. And, um, and my, my relief comes in and I'm like, dude, what's going on? And he's like, oh man, we're going to war. And I'm like, what? <laughs> so I walk out and in a matter of four hours, I was on watch because we were right on the airfield. The airfield was empty when I went in, when I came out, they had so many planes stacked on that small little airfield it was it was amazing how they could fit so many there because it was kind of like the staging point before they all like refueled and did their thing and then went on over to um the gulf so yeah it was it was crazy and that was would have been in uh, 1990 i'm pretty sure either late 89 or 90 that's right our freshman year yeah 90 90 but you had a so you're 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 um let's say you're you're part of our community 
That's where the that's where the story starts to get interesting, because you picked up orders to spec war after the fact. That's correct. Tell us a yep. little bit. Tell us goes down uh, that, they go down that rabbit well, hole a little bit. Well, I'd never heard of a seal before. I had no idea. Never heard of you guys. Didn't even because back then it was the um, the you know silent professionals. You know, even nobody talked about seals. The media never talked about seals. Like I I had never heard of a seal. And, um, and I had been trying to get orders. I wanted to go where the action was. I like, I just, like I said, I was a wild child. I wanted, I wanted the adrenaline. I wanted the excitement. So, and as a female in, in that era, you know, we couldn't go on combat ships. We couldn't go into combat roles. So you got as close as you could was about the best you were going to do as a female. So, uh, I kept trying to get to, um, Bahrain is where I kept trying to get to. And there was never any, uh, billets available. So finally, I got a hold of my detailer and he said, uh, I got something in Panama. Well, just cause had just happened. I mean, it, would, it was not even really over with yet. They, it was just the dust was just starting to settle. This would have been early 90. That was a big deal. And I said, say again. That's, that's just a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. It was a really big deal. Yeah. Because it was December 89 when, when, you know, the shit hit the fan in, in Panama. So uh, I knew about just cause. I had seen the. Uh, the old fax machines and we get into bulletins going on of what was going on around the world and stuff like that. So I knew there had been, you know, combat in action. Now, mind you, in the Azores, we didn't have TV. We didn't have cable. There was one news source. It was CNN. And that was mediocre at best. Right. So um, I just knew that something had happened in Panama pretty much. And I said, all right, that, that sounds good. I'll, t- I'll take that, you know, warm, nice, warm climate. You know, the Azores weather sucked. I hated it. Um, so he said, you're going to Naval Special Warfare Unit 8. And I'm like, okay. I didn't know. So as my exo was walking by the door, he stopped in his tracks and he backed up and he go, he heard, he heard me talking and he goes, SEALs, you're going to work with SEALs. And I said, spec war, sir. And he goes, yeah, that's SEALs. And I'm like, okay. He goes, girl, he says, you better start running and doing some push-ups now. He said, it's about to get real. And I was just like, what? And so I started learning a little bit more about what the teams were. And, and I did, I started working out a little bit harder, you know, cause in, in the aviation facility, PT was a joke. Like you did your, you did your quarterly PT test and that was it. There yeah, wasn't right. much to it. Corman signs off on it and you get on. Say again. So you get the Corman signs off on it and you're good to go. Pretty much. Oh. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. It was, it was, it was a joke. Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. few months later, I uh, got, I got orders. I got down there and, you know, the, the dust had more or less settled, but the wounds were still very fresh, obviously for everybody that was there. 
um, a lot more happened than, you know, what the, the world knew oh, about. Too, and, cool. Man, yeah, that, they hadn't even got done licking the wounds by the time you got there. So yeah, still, exactly. People hadn't even got time to get over the fact that that had happened. It was no, then. no, no. We lost four guys. Um, the loss was difficult to say the least. Um, and if, if my memory serves me correctly, I think it was the first time we had a, a, a big loss in a long time. Since Vietnam. Um, yeah. So, um, sadly, of course that changed during your time, but at the, that time, that was a big one. So, um, yeah, it was, it was very, you know how seals do it, man. We're always trying to outdo each other. <laughs> that's the only way that's the only way we can look at that in a positive light right it's just like man just we're always trying to outdo each other if it's gonna go bad for us we're gonna make sure it goes real bad yeah yeah you guys are the probably no not probably you are the most competitive human beings i've ever encountered in my lifetime period ever period and period right there. there's there's no ifs ands or buts about it yeah. but uh so yeah so i ended up in panama and hands down to this day best years of my life best years of my life i strongly believe that that working in this backcore community um built me into who i am because when i arrived i was the small town naive um scared little girl you know insecure and uh and it was sink or swim man it was, it was sink or swim. If you were going to hang with the big boys, you had to learn to swim with them. And they, uh, they helped me find, they, they, like I said, they helped me kind of like dig deep and figure out who I really was. And, and I'm forever grateful for that. Yeah. We don't tend to feel sorry for anybody. Doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman, bring the best out of you. When you say sink or swim, we swim in the deep end of the pool anyway. So if you're going to come play with it, that's where you have to go. And, <laughs> but the thing about it is if you stick it out with us, man, it's a, it's a, cause we have to earn each other's loyalty. And same thing. Like there's some guys yeah. there you probably that they get assigned there that they're like, I was at teams with them and they never even talked to me one time. I was like, well, you know, <laughs> there's, yeah, something, there's, to that. there's that. something to that. Right. Yeah. I, mean, that's just, I used to tell people if they're picking on you, it means they like you. Yeah, if it's they good. don't yeah, talk exactly. to you, then they don't like you. That's the problem. And yeah. that's yeah, exactly, that's, that's absolutely 100% true. There's a whole chapter in my book about the 10 days that I've, I, I volunteered. I wasn't voluntold. I straight up volunteered. And when I say volunteered, I mean begged, begged the training department and the skipper to let me go out in the jungle on a training op with the guys. Because for uh, at that point, three years, I'd been typing after action reports, hearing stories, you know, and it sounded so cool and it sounded so fun. Again, I was still that little adrenaline junkie. And I'm like, you know, I knew I couldn't go on a real, you know, op, obviously but I wanted to go on. They did lots of training ops and I'm like, please, you know, and finally they, they gave in. It was just months before I was getting out of the Navy and uh, they, they let me go. And I spent 10 days in the jungle with the guys. And, and I tell you, I would never ever do it again. You guys earn every freaking penny of your paychecks and then some, but I, I wouldn't trade that experience for anything in the world either. Can you share with was, um, the listeners what you learned about yourself when you're out there suffering? Uh, well, it's like what Marcus just said, um, you don't quit. If you quit, you're going to lose respect. And my attitude was, was like, look, nobody told me to get out of here. I volunteered for this shit and I begged for this shit and I'll be damned if I'm going to like walk away from this a quitter. And, um, and let me tell you, man, they screwed with me every chance they got. It was like, 
you know, I had to go through this little crash course on all the poisonous things that were in the jungle from, you know, Bushmaster snakes to fertilances to the black palms to the, the dart frog and, you know, every freaking black out palm there. trees, man. Oh, <laughs> Dude, those are legendary right? stories about those things. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Every time no, I no, hear that okay. word, I'm like, Dude. we had a guy on the opposing platoon that was looking for us. We were simulating the bad guys. So we were hiding in the jungle um, as bad guys, terrorists who were going to take out a cruise liner. It was just transiting the canal. That was the, the scenario. Right. And so we were hiding up in the jungles and um, our, our guys would go out in the middle of the night and, do whatever it is they did that, you know, gather Intel. And it was, it was like cat and mouse, you know, playing, you know, hide and go seek. And um, it was monsoon season. So every time you took a step and we're talking, you know, mountains, you would slide. Like I would, I would go down to about my mid thigh in mud and just slide. So it was like one step forward, you know, three steps back and you clawed with your hands and, and we couldn't move at night at all. Cause you couldn't see anything. It was pitch black. Um, all the guys had weapons. They wouldn't let me have one. Um, even though I was qualified, they, I think they, they knew they were going to be screwing with me. So they want me to shoot one of them. Um, but no, it they, has nothing uh, to do with that. It's just, if they ever got into a gunfight, we wouldn't want you to outdo us. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, it's a competition thing. I never even thought about that. <laughs> oh, it's the I only way you was... can have to, yeah, you have to look at it like that. <laughs> and there's a protection nodule in it as well, but Ultimately, it's uh, from here on out. When you tell a story, it's like, yeah, they just didn't want, me. yeah. I'll, you're I the weapon. Shot. I was better shot. Yeah, because every <laughs> when, when we were blessed to have one of y'all on, on the with us, man, you know, every now and again they get to show we they show up, man. It's uh, it's funny if 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 y'all have a good. Y'all know Herschel Davis? Yeah, of course. He he was my he was my command master chief, and he's the one who taught me to shoot. So. Oh is, yeah, we know. I love him. that man, dude. Man, she, he's like a father to me. I I I. Absolutely adore him. When he was supposed to actually be at my retirement party recently, but uh, unfortunately couldn't make it at the last minute. That but I, guy, I, man. I just—he's like a second father to me. I adore he him. He is something. I mean, when you think of a fro crusty frog man, like respect, mad respect. Yeah, I, yeah I've so only run into him a couple of times. Honored oh, to do it. I used to ride Harley's with him all the time out at the beach. Well, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about me. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I I her, I was blessed to have Herschel as my CMC. Blessed. Because the first time I ever went on the range with the guys, um, it was a whole platoon. And I grew up around guns. Guns didn't scare me. You know, my first gun I ever shot was at my dad's 357, and I was 10. So uh, which was not smart, but whatever. Um, but I got out there and I tell you, just that firepower and that amount of testosterone and like I said, when I first got there, I was a bit naive and, you know, a little skittish and I kind of freaked out, you know, I, I got scared. I was just overwhelmed, intimidated. And, uh, went back to the unit and the XO told Herschel, he says, take her out there one-on-one. -on -one. He goes, get her straight. And the very next day, Herschel took me out and I've been shooting expert ever since. And I've won my fair share of bets at, at the, in, in the law enforcement community, which has been fun, but, um, it's, uh, I, 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 I love to shoot now. You know, so I'm like I said, I, I have nothing but amazing things to say about every experience I had down there. But getting back to the jungle. Um, so, yeah, they messed with me. They told me Fertilance's uh, traveled in pairs and somebody just killed one and just keep an eye out for the other. So, of course, you know, I became paranoid. I'm looking <laughs> everywhere, checking my boots, checking this, checking that. You know, it was just one just one mental 
you know, mind game after the next. But I uh, about um, it was supposed to be a 10 day op and it was day seven, I think, when the training O came out because um, they would come out every couple of days just to see if we needed anything and and whatnot. And the training O came out and he said uh, they, they broke the bad news that because um, it was a joint task force op. So they had Air Force involved and um, grids and, and Intel and all this other stuff. But they said uh, that there had been something that had gone wrong and they were going to have to extend the op another five days on top of the additional three days. And mentally, I had prepared myself for three more damn days, three more damn days. I looked like the swamp thing. I had this long is your brown first hair, one, right? It was caked in mud. Huh? <laughs> this is your first time out with? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. You know, it, and and it, I was so un- ill-prepared, unprepared, didn't know how to string a hammock. I used a whole roll of 550 cord just to hang my hammock and, you know, nobody would help me do shit. I had to do it on my own, which was fine. I mean, again, I asked for this. So every time somebody needed 550 cord, they just come over to my rack and they'd freaking cut what they needed and they restring it. And as the week went by, my hammock had less and less 550 cord because they needed it. It was just stupid shit. But um, like I said, there's a whole chapter just on this in my book. And I've had readers tell me, you know, they, I had them pee in their pants laughing, you know, because it's it's through the eyes of, 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 a, of a rookie, you know, a female rookie who had no idea what the hell she was getting herself into. Because yeah, we never go, you never go out for just three days. It, it <laughs> never lasts. And if they call in, hey, we're just going to extend you for three days. Just go ahead and just get the end date out of your head. It's like, hey, man, whenever we get in there. This is where we live. Well, yeah, this is where we at. Yeah. This is where well, we I'll got. be honest with you. They were screwing with me. Sure. There really wasn't an extension. They, well, that, they were messing with me. Oh, also, oh, I, well, then soon, you got soon, lucky. As soon, <laughs> soon, soon as you said that, I was like, oh, they're just checking with you. Yeah, I was like, yeah. They used to yeah. do that to yeah, us yeah, and they all the time. They were messing like, with me. They were trying to break me because at that point, I hadn't cried yet. They were trying to break me to cry. And that did it. That did it. And I and I won't explain why because I. I uh, elation. I was like, you want me to cry? Sure, man. No, no, no. <laughs> That's all I got to do. That's no. all I got to do is cry. Man, I'll cry all day. <laughs> yeah, no. They, they, they told me, let me, how can I say this? Um, as a woman, things happen once a month. Yeah. And I did math and figured out that that was going to be an issue for me. And they told me the howler monkeys were going to come after me in a 10 mile radius. <laughs> so so yeah. I didn't have a gun to protect myself. Yeah, and I just, they thought of everything. They make you move outside <laughs> camp. Hey, hey, we need to put, we need to put your tent You're, outside of we camp. Need, too. Yeah, we're going to flank security about I half mile. I freaked out at the envision of being attacked by, you know, hordes oh, of these man. fucking little, I'm sorry. I hate those monkeys to this day. Those evil little, God, I hate those monkeys. That's brilliant. Yeah, we're going to need you to push you out to the right flank about a half a mile. Yeah, you're going to be by yourself. <laughs> yeah. So, but I made it. I made there it. You go. Keep and going. Uh, they asked me how I felt. And I know I've pissed off a lot of feminists with this. With this. I've had so many, you know, um, you know, hardcore women over the years approach me in uniform as a police officer. Good for you. Good for showing those guys you can do anything you can do and anything they can do. And I just kind of shake my head and, and say, have you ever served in the military? No. You ever served in uniform? No. I said, then how do you know? How, how do you know that we can do anything they can do? I said, because I have. And I can tell you, I'm all about women being, you know, driving tanks and flying fighter planes. And I got no issues with that. I said, but going out on a battlefield, I said, and having to carry a brother out who weighs 
200 and something pounds with another 80 to 100 pounds strapped to them out of a gunfight. I don't care how much adrenaline you got. I said, I don't know a woman that could do it. I said, I don't believe in women going in special ops. I, I, I think that as men and women, we're all very much equal. Um, we can do things, you know, we're better at things that, that men aren't and y'all are much better at things that we're not and we're equal, but we're different. And I'm frankly, very okay with that. I said, but you know, I've, uh, that's not a popular opinion, but I don't care. I, I feel like I've, I earned it. I earned my opinion. So equally different. That's, that's the way you want to be equally different. Yep. That's, that's the proper way. Equally different. Yep. And, uh, so you know, in my book, I write about, you know, why I think um, the way I do. And um, now, if there's a woman that can, out there that can prove me wrong, I think one just made it through buds, if I heard correctly. No, that's incorrect. That is incorrect. That is incorrect. That is okay. incorrect. Good. Thanks she for straightening in, that out. There's one in pre-buds right now. And I think one ah. made, it, made it through SWIC. She's a crewman. I think she's a crewman. But not, we haven't had any through. We have them already. That's the thing. People, yeah, people are making this big deal about uh, yeah. there aren't women in spec war. And just think about it to, to rearrange all of that for how many could actually. I get it to rearrange it for so women can go through it, but how many? How many can't or want to even want to? So for one, like you're doing all that for a, for a cup because it's only a handful of guys make it through. So you're trying to find right. that the the needle in the needle in the needle. Mm-hmm. Which, I would completely I, agree. I, I'm glad, and, and then just that's just getting through the training, right? And you still got to earn your your Budweiser when you get your to your team. I get it. It's, and, it's, it's like when you said equally different. I I really like that saying actually because the pain scale. Like I couldn't appreciate how much pain y'all can take till I got married. My wife had a kid, and I had to sit <laughs> yeah. watch that go down. I was like, wait a minute. I, I you know I get a stomach ache and it's like all stop. <laughs> what what? Um, so yeah that. That is a, a thing. We're just, we're designed yeah. differently. Doesn't mean that you can't do the job. I mean, but there are certain like that program was designed for a certain reason. The standards designed to 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 pick out certain things about men. Right. Absolutely. That, that, it wasn't it's nothing, nothing about discrimination. It's designed to pick out certain men. The toughest. But, the yeah. toughest me- mentally and physically. I was talking to uh, one of the congressmen came down. I was talking about uh, Goggins and a couple of the other guys, and, and they were talking about why we didn't have a lot. Why isn't there more uh, black guys in here? I'm like, they're rare. There's not that many of them. She's like, yeah, I know. We need to flood it. We need to get a many. I was like, no, no. They're rare. There's not that many of them on Earth. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? I was like, they're just that's a rare human being. Mm-hmm. No matter how much you throw in there, man, it's still gonna the the disposal's still gonna catch that big stuff, and then the, your primes will come out. But yeah, and that's that's the biggest thing. I'm like, you know, the teams are elite for a reason because it's the you know one of the toughest trainings, if not the toughest training, you know, on the planet. And you don't want to lower those standards. That's the last thing they want to do is lower the standards just to meet a quota. That's like. You know, they just they can't do it. They shouldn't do it. It also has to do. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, brothers, the mind thing. But I, the separation of us, 
they separate us from women on purpose. That makes us angry and makes us. And then the competition between guys. And when you put that in there, the female, everything shifts to her. It's a, it's a natural. We can't help it. No, you're my, right. My point you're with absolutely that. Absolutely right. It's an instinct. Cannot help it. So yeah, I agree. Throwing that in there, that it has nothing to do. With, yes, y'all can do the weight and you can carry the. Sure, absolutely, I agree with that one hundred percent. You know, if you find one that can do it, do it. My point with that is, is you're trying to go against instinct, and you can't, you just can't breed that out of. It. So it'll, that program will cease to exist the way it was once you do that. I, no, I hundred percent agree. Hundred percent agree. So anyway, um, so tell us about your transition from military into law enforcement. What was that like? Oh, it sucked. Why? Because um, I didn't want to get out of the Navy. I tried my very best to stay in the Navy. I told uh, like my whole chain of command uh, all the way up to the commandant at spec war uh, had endorsed for me to get a waiver to reenlist because it was uh, the, the, the beginning of the Clinton administration. Right. And they were doing all the downsizing and the budget cuts. So because there were too many females in the yeoman rating, which is what I was, I was a yeoman. Um, you either had to, uh, switch rates to a rating where they needed more females, like boiler technicians, boats and mates, things of that nature, or get out of the Navy. And I was real happy doing what I did. And so I'm like, look, you know, it costs more to replace me and retrain somebody else to do my job. And, you know, here at, at the unit, what if I just stay here? I was willing to stay in Panama, stay put, stay at the unit. Don't replace me. Just let me, like, just leave me alone. Let me stay. What made me ineligible for reenlistment was I was going to be, my EAOS was two weeks shy of the next, next advancement exam. And I had to have at least taken the E5 uh, promotional test once in order to be eligible to reenlist. And I was two weeks shy of being able to take it. So uh, they tried to get me a waiver. And like I said, they, the whole spec work community got behind me, wrote letters. And three or four days before my enlistment was up, the denial came back from Hoover's. So um, I had uh, a roommate who to this day is like a sister to me. And they were like, you know, best buddy. She came down just for my shoulder surgery to help me through it. Um, and, you know, I had to leave her with the power of attorney to ship all my my stuff back to the US, my car, everything. And, and I went back in February of 93 uh, when this huge snowstorm hit and I got snowed in with my parents on the mountain with no transportation, none of my property. Uh, my dad was really off his rocker by this point. Um, and, oh God, it was hell. I can remember calling the unit from North Carolina you know, um, cause a couple of the guys had just become like big brothers to me. And I remember calling and crying and, and just like, what do I do? I got to get out of here. There's like, it's too far to walk anywhere. It's freaking freezing outside. I got so mad one day. My dad and I got such a huge fight that I ran out in barefoot shorts and a t-shirt. And it was probably in the teens and I'm walking in snow just to get the hell out of the house. It was, it was awful. I thought, I thought some, one of us was going to kill the other. Um, and then finally my, belongings came and, and I had an uncle in Atlanta who was an HR, uh, expert. So I went down and I stayed with him and he helped me build my resume and helped me, you know, teach me how to interview for jobs. I don't know what I would have done. He, he was then what like transition people are now. So yeah. luckily I just happened to have a family member. So he helped me and I got, um, a couple jobs. I got 
first job was with a law firm that didn't last long. I decided I hated attorneys. So then um, I went to work for an agricultural company um, in administrative position and it was okay. It was boring enough. Nobody was my age. Everybody was much older. So then I took a night job, second job as a cocktail waitress at an improv comedy club in Buckhead, Atlanta. And that was fun because at least I got to meet some people and (laughs) People my age. Go ahead, Marcus. No, I love Buckhead. I, I used to have a, growing up because Airborne Benning's down there, so we would always go. And and then when uh, I was at Bragg too for a while, so every now and again during a holiday we get to venture up. But please go ahead. Yeah, I know. So I lived I lived there for a year, um, working basically day in the in the office job at nights as a as a nightclub waitress. And then, um, so what's I, I got a question? What's the difference then? Because when we transition out, we still have the same. We have a job in the military, like we crank paper and we do right. It's the, it's it ultimately it boils down to the camaraderie. Yeah. Oh yeah, and there is none. There there is none. There's no commonality. Um, it, it just uh, it was oh, it just sucked. I mean, I moved to a city and I didn't know anybody my age, nobody to hang out with. It was just me, and. Um, I picked Atlanta because I wanted to be far enough away from home, but close enough to go home for a long weekend. It was three hours. So, and I had an uncle there that could help me find a job. So, um, but then, uh, let's see, I settled in there. It was in May of 93. No, that's not right. Got to help February. Yeah, no, it would have been May of 93 ish. And then it was a few months later that 1.30 in the morning, uh, somebody knocked at my door and it was my mom. And she had been held hostage for 10 days against her will till they ran out of food. And she convinced my dad to let her go to the grocery store. And she literally left with the clothes on her back and drove three hours and showed up at my doorstep. And that was it. She finally left him. And um, that was your dad doing that? It, my dad. Yeah. yeah. Dad. He, he held her at gunpoint and disabled the car and did the phones like she had no treatment she had no communication like just he was gonna kill her there was no doubt about it he'd already um she woke up one night she had he had gun to her head and um it was a revolver and there were no rounds in it but she didn't know that he pulled the trigger and it went click and scared the obviously scared the hell out of her you know he was he just like i said he just kept getting crazier and crazier and crazier and then um finally i think it was her orthopedist she was having a lot of orthopedic problems that and and he told her he's going to kill you you need to get out and he gave her the courage to leave and and she came to me and that's why you know i look back and i think oh i wish i would have stayed in i wish i would have retired i wish this i wish that and i'm like but if i had stayed in i wouldn't have been there for my mom and she would have had nowhere to go because i'm an only child i'm all, I'm all my mom had so um you know i think big part of my life and, and my journal and my book was learning that everything in life happens for a reason. Yeah, we may not understand it, but it does. It happens for a reason. 100%. So how'd you choose law enforcement? <laughs> so I ended up in Florida because dad was office rocker and mom and I ended up in Florida, got a real estate license to timeshare thing for seven years. Um, and, uh, partied from the age of about 24 to, to 30. That's what you're supposed um, to do. What? That's what you're supposed to do. <laughs> yeah, partied. And it was funny because my friends, my girlfriends would would go out like, you're no fun. I was always the designated driver. And I'm like, honestly, guys, you don't know how to have fun. 
Cause they were taking me to like strip clubs, you know, like Chippendale type crap. Sure. Who doesn't like that? And guy? I'm, I'm like, y'all don't understand. I, I, I work around seals every day. Every morning was Chippendales. That's I'm right. like, you know, that's my favorite place. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I'm like, it was boring. And then one day a group of guys came down and we went out partying and my friends were, were WTF. Like what the hell's wrong with these guys? And I'm having the blast, you know, I'm like, this is partying. This is how you have fun, you know? And they're like, yeah, they're crazy. And I'm like, well, now you know why I get bored when I go out with you guys. Definitely take it to a different um, level. So I was working a side job in the mall and there was a cop that kept coming in to just, he would work work off duty at the mall and he would just come in to shoot the shit with me. And uh, over a period of, I don't know, months, just kind of, started telling me, you know, you'd be a good cop. And I'm like, no, no way. Uh, uh-uh. Cops are just a bunch of, you know, got picked on as a kid and, and now they're bully with a gun and a badge. I mean, I really, I had gotten five speeding tickets the year I turned five, 25. I had been called the dumbest bitch on the road. I had gotten called and really been disrespected. Um, I can, there was one cop in South Carolina that got pulled over. Not only wrong, I deserved to pull over, get pulled over. I was speeding. I was wrong. I'm not saying I wasn't. But that doesn't give somebody an excuse to be an asshole, right? So um, I was having really negative law enforcement encounters, and it gave me a just really just negative perception. So um, this guy, you know, and I'm like, dude, you're like the only cool cop I've ever met. And he's like, nah, that's just because, you know, you're just getting to know me because I'm just hanging out with you. He goes, trust me, there's a method to the madness, blah, blah, blah. So he was a sergeant and he convinced me to go out and do a ride along with one of his female deputies because he just was felt really strongly I'd be a good cop. So I did. I went out and I did a ride along on midnight shift and I had the time of my life. And I remember, you know, getting to see what it was really like from the inside of the patrol car, from the other side of the fence. And I decided, all right, if because it was fun. I, I liked that it wasn't monotonous. You never knew what you're going to get into every day. Um, I love the idea of helping people. And that was when I really realized, you know, I was really missing spec war a a lot because we were part of the whole drug war, you know, thing in Panama. And I've always been really against drugs. So I felt like I, even though, you know, I was part of a team, I was never treated as anything less than the member of the team. And I, and I liked being part of the greater good. So I felt like in law enforcement, I could be part of the greater good just because I had met some assholes didn't mean I had to be one. So I kind of put the belt and gun and belt on. And I remember telling myself, I will never be that guy. You know, I won't be a bitch unless somebody really, really forces me to be a bitch. And yes, over the years, I had to be a bitch a few times. It, it, you know, sometimes, unfortunately, there are people out there. That's all they respond to. You can be as nice as you want and they'll mistake your kindness for weakness and they will try you. but I always tried kindness first and most of the time it worked. Occasionally it didn't. And then it was funny because when we would get him under arrest, I would get him in my patrol car, be on the way to the jail. They'd be like, man, you're like the nicest cop that's ever arrested me. I'm like, dude, why'd you try me? He's like, oh, I just, you know, like, I don't know if they knew it didn't know any different or they thought that they could get away with it. Never quite figured out the psychology of it. But some people, that's just that's just how they are. They want to push. It don't to try limit. and figure it out. I think it, there's that in the moment, right? There's always the, yeah. in the moment thing. Yeah. And I'm like, look, you treat me with respect. That's the exact same thing you're going to get in return. I mean, respect is a two-way street. You give it, you get it. It's that simple.
2017 was a pretty rough go for you. You mind digging in a little bit with that? Yeah, sure. Um, so I experienced my true first trauma in the Navy at my first duty station right out of A school. And I never told anybody about it. I told myself as an E2 19 year old, it was a bad dream. It never happened. And I went on about my life and I didn't understand or know that because of my choices and how I handled that situation, um, it would instill a lack of trust in human beings the way it did. I'm sure growing up with my dad didn't help, but, um, but I, I certainly don't blame my upbringing. Lots of people have tough childhoods, so I, I don't blame that. Um, so with that said, um, I had struggled with relationships my entire life. Like I wouldn't let myself get close to anybody. I, I just really, really, really struggled. I had one person that I met in Panama, um, a SWIC that had become my best friend and, um, like my rock, the one person that I could always trust. Um, I say that because he was the only person that I ever really opened up to. And I did tell him one time about what happened in the Azores. Um, and I told him, and we're never going to discuss this again. And that's that. Okay. Fast forward to 2017. At that point, I'd been a cop for 17 years. I had interviewed countless victims of all ages from, uh, you know, domestic violence, robberies, sex crimes, um, attempted homicides. I mean, you name it. I had my first child death call was early in my career. It was a drowning of a two-year-old. And back then we didn't have anything set up in place. Like we didn't have a supervisor show up. You finished the call and you went on to the next. And, um, I remember being in the hospital wondering why all the nurses and doctors were crying. I'm like, they see death all the time. Why are they so upset? I didn't really, I was so busy in like work mode that I didn't let my emotions get involved. I was on autopilot. It was the next day that kind of hit me what actually happened. And I kind of fell apart and I cried and I called my mom and I, cause she worked in, um, in the medical examiner's office. She used to deal with the families who'd lost somebody. So she understood it. And, um, she said, look, everybody, you know, some people cry right away. Some people have to process it. She goes, there's no right or wrong way to handle this. Everybody does it their own way. So I cried about the little boy and I went back to work and I went shortly thereafter was 9-11. And, um, dude, that changed our whole world. Like everything we knew as law enforcement officers completely changed, but we could talk forever just on that alone. So it just got really crazy at work. And as the years unfolded, you know, I can remember certain calls like from horrific car crashes, um, talking to somebody who was literally dying, you know, and I knew he was dying, but I couldn't tell him he was dying. He kept saying, am I going to be okay? And, and I'm looking at his leg over there and I'm looking at his, you know, torso is all mangled and he's dying. And I can't tell him that you just never tell somebody that you just stay with him until it's too late, you know? But um, so I had a lot of like really, really, really traumatic calls, murder, suicides, domestic homicides, you know, horrific sexual batteries. Um, and then there was a call involving a 13 year old girl. My daughter was in uh, going into middle school at this point, I think. No, sorry. She was elementary school still, but she was about fourth grade, I think. And uh, there was a 13 year old girl who hung herself in the garage and we got there and, you know, that's. It, it, even when it's, I mean, I'd seen lots of hangings, but I had never seen a child. 
And it was really, really disturbing. And to make matters worse, we heard chaos in the house because the deputies that got there right before us had moved the family out of the garage into the home. You never want to, the firefighters are trying to do their job and, and render, you know, trying to save what they could. And um, mom asked to go to the bathroom. And of course they let her and she came out with a gun to her head. And now we're in a standoff with mom. Um, we don't want her to kill herself. We don't want her to do, you know, suicide by cop, which sadly we see a lot of, and her husband and her son were about y'all size. They were big boys and they're trying to get at mom. So we're fighting them, trying to keep them from getting to her. Cause we don't want the gun to accidentally go off. And so we finally got her, uh, put the gun down, thank God. And, you know, handled the call as necessary. And, Again, close the call up on to the next. And so this went on for years and then 17 hit and I finally got into a relationship and first guy that I've ever allowed to move in with me. And if, and it didn't take me long to realize I made a huge mistake. Um, so I had broken it off with him and it was not an easy breakup because he wouldn't go away. Um, and I was dealing with the stress of all that. And then my mom went into ICU and then my German shepherd dog died. And on June 1st, 2017, I responded to a call of another two-year-old drowning. And when we ran into the house, the mom had a knife at her throat and we're again fighting with another mother who's suicidal, finally get to the backyard um, after unarming the mom and go to work on the baby and the baby doesn't make it. And I knew right away the baby wasn't going to make it. You could just tell when they've been in the water too long. And um, there was something about that call that was like, for me, the straw that broke the camel's back and all of the stuff from the breakup to my mom going into ICU to my dog dying and the baby dying all happened in about a seven day period. And it was like, I got punched in the face and I went down and before I could stand back up on my feet again, somebody else punched me down. And before I could get up, somebody else punched me down. Any of the other traumas, I had time to recover and get myself back on my feet. But for this, that period in time for me was just really hard. And that, and I never properly processed any of it, never talked about it. It was the job and, you know, and I went on, um, that one, that one hurt hard. And I went into a really horrible, horrible, dark place and I couldn't stop crying. And my daughter at this point was 11 years old and had never seen mom cry. I mean, I was like wonder woman to her. I wore a cape, you know, she, she never saw me get down. And if I did, I didn't let her see it. And now all of a sudden I was down and I couldn't, couldn't fake it anymore. And that's what I, that's what I realized. I just couldn't, couldn't fake it. And I cried and I was withdrawn and I wasn't taking phone calls and I wasn't, I was avoiding people at work. I was going on calls and handling them by myself and canceling my backup because I didn't want my peers to see me the way I was, which is probably not the smartest choice. And, um, and then it was about, at some point I did call someone that I trusted and they told me to go get some Xanax at the doctor's office and that would help calm me down. So I did that. And then all that did was stop the fears, but it didn't stop the depression. And then long story short, it was, uh, 
about six weeks later after the incident in mid-July, when I, I put my daughter on a plane and I sent her out of state and I had made up my mind that I was either going to figure out how to get my shit together, or I was going to put myself out of my pain. I had, uh, I hate to use the word voices, but they call them the demons. I had the thoughts that, you know, I'm a failure as a mother. I, I can't even get my shit together. You know, my daughter deserves better than this. Um, so I figured, you know, if I made it look like an accident, the insurance money would take care of her. I had it all figured out. And um, I was absolutely terrified to talk to anybody that I worked with because as a critical incident team member, I had, we call it Baker acting in Florida. I don't know what they call it in Texas, but it's when you take somebody to the mental hospital against their will um, for mental, you know, a mental check. A Saturday. Um, Okay. No, yeah, I don't know what we, what we call it. Yeah, we in Florida, it's called a Baker Act. So, I mean, I had Baker Act hundreds of people in my career. And um, so I knew, I knew that if I told somebody what I was thinking, they were going to haul me off to the local mental hospital. And that was the end of my career. And I would be ashamed and embarrassed and I would lose everything. And that just for me was not, that was not a freaking option. It was, I was, that was not going to happen. Wasn't going to do it. Um, the humility and the embarrassment, the shame. Mm -mm, nope. So I uh, figured out how, how, and what I was going to do. And then I called that best friend. I told you about the sweet guy. We have maintained friendship all these years. Um, and I called him and to my surprise, he answered the phone. I, he was horrible about answering his phone and he answered his phone that day. And uh, it was a Saturday. And as soon as I started talking, he knew exactly what was up. And he spent eight hours on the phone with me telling me that there was a, a, a way to get through this without my agency knowing what was going on without them finding out. Um, I could get help on the down low. I had never been rated by the VA. I had never been to the VA. Um, I didn't qualify for VA services. Um, so, um, but he told me that I could go and pay out of my pocket for, for counseling. So I started doing that at first. And then um, they put me on meds and it got me stabilized to where I felt somewhat human again. Um, I, at this point, was talking to other brothers that were team guys and had battled their demons from just cause. And they were really good at letting me realize that, you know, I wasn't alone and they were, they had battled their demons too. And they gave me some tips on, you know, what worked for them. So I had brothers checking on me regularly, which I, like I said, saved my life. And then one day I was in a, a course and there was, our instructor was a uh, combat Marine and he had a service dog and he had been in law enforcement for 10 years. He pulled me to the side um, at lunch and he called me out. He read right through me. He read me like a book. Didn't know this guy. And he said, did you say you served in the military? And I'm like, yeah. And he goes, did something happen to you? And I just, I just looked at him. Nobody had ever asked me. And when I tell you the demons, it was like, when I hit rock bottom, it was like somebody put C4 on a black box that I had put the mother of all locks on, right? <laughs> on the back shelf in my brain and pretended it wasn't there. But when that, that baby died, it was like somebody C4 that bitch open 
And all of those traumas came out and I, they were keeping me awake and I was seeing the dead faces and I was hearing the mother's screams and it, it wouldn't stop. It was, it was horrible. And, um, and along with it, the rape from the first duty station came out and I hadn't thought about it for years. I had had nightmares about it, but it was just nightmares. And I kept telling myself, it's just a bad dream. I never actually dealt with it. And that was also coming back. It is just all just, it was just every night I got punched in the face over and over and over again. And I just couldn't take it. It was, it was too painful. So, um, uh, Jesse, uh, who I think the world of to this day, um, like I said, he's got a PhD in sociology. He runs an incredible retreat up in Montana for first responders and veterans with PTSD, um, and I've got on my website, we'll talk about it in a little bit, but I've got really good resources that have embedded on my, my website for anybody who's struggling. Cause this is what I'm all about now. But, um, he, he called it out. He, he read me like a book and he said, did something happen to you? And I just started bawling. And I said, how did you know? He goes, he goes, your dog. And he said, your dog's feeding off your anxiety and your anxiety peaks every time a victim is being interviewed. So every time I was watching a victim in the training class get interviewed, my anxiety went up. My anxiety was running down lead to my dog and my dog was trying to distract me from what was going on. So my dog was basically acting like a service dog without being a service dog. Um, We were there for a canine training class and I was trying to get him certified as a therapy dog. And Jesse was like, your dog is no therapy dog. He's way too in tune to you. Your dog is a service dog. And I was like, what? I don't need a service dog. You know, I, why would I need a service dog? And he goes, you've got PTSD. You know that, right? And I was like, holy shit, the cat's out of the bag, you know, but, um, best thing that ever happened to me. So he sent me to the VA and he made me go, he gave me the rest of the day off and he made me go to the VA and I walked in and I couldn't even tell the ladies why I was there. And like, man, we understand you. You're not in our system. You're not a patient. What do you want us to do? And I couldn't get myself to say the words because I had never really uttered them out, out loud. And I saw a banner of this woman's head and it was um, about MST. And I had no idea. And Jesse told me this. He goes, you won't believe how many women are coming out, you know, 20 years later. And there it was. And I just pointed at the banner and would get tears in my eyes. And she said, sit down. I'll be right back. Within 20 minutes, I was sitting in a counselor's office and it's been, yeah, I, I know a lot of people don't have nice things to say about the VA. But I can tell you, I had a wonderful experience. They, my local VA treated me wonderfully. Well, so and that's that's so my so my book was my journal while I was in therapy. I was trying to put pieces of the puzzle. I had suppressed so many memories, including good ones, and I wanted to remember the good ones. And so I was talking to my therapist about I want to remember the good times. So I started journaling for therapy and. Before you know it, somebody was like, you know, you should really think about sharing your story. You could help people with it. And um, I reached out to Don Mann. I'm, I'm assuming you guys know who Don Mann is. Yeah. So Don and I served together in Panama and I, and I knew he had been publishing books. And I called Don and I said, hey, I, I think maybe I wrote a book. Um, it's in my Google Docs as a journal. <laughs> what do I do now? And Don pooched me through the process. And the, here I am, you know, and my, so my mission isn't just about my book. I mean, it tells my story, but it's like, I understand that our suicide rate, not only in our veteran community, but in our first responder community is a lot higher than people realize because in the first responder community, they're not tracing it like the veteran community is. They should be, but, but they're not. It's still very taboo. It's not considered a line of duty death. 
the family is left without um, a respectful funeral. It's, it's, it's awful how it's handled. And it's, it's not across the board. I know some agencies are really good about it, but overall it, it I, I would venture to say if I had to guess maybe 10% of agencies handle um, suicides in their ranks better than the other 90%. It's, it's taboo and, and it's not considered line of duty. And I, and I don't agree with that, but and a lot of people don't, but um, anyway, so I want to erase the stigma because I know for me, the reason I wasn't asking for help long before when I should have was the stigma. I was afraid of them taking me to the mental hospital and throwing away the key and losing my gun and my badge. And, and when I talked to others, you know, survivors of suicide um, victims, that's what it is. They wouldn't talk about their issues because they were embarrassed or ashamed or afraid of what would happen to their careers. And I want to change that. I want to make it, I want to, I want to fix the leadership so that they understand what they can be doing better for their people. So it won't get to that point because the problem is trust. We need better trust. And I want to let those who've been through hell understand that there are options for them. And if their agency won't handle help them, there are, there are lots of other options. They just need to know where to look. You, you've come out of this amazingly. Thank you. Like. Appreciate that. And I've, I've, I've operated in and around this space for quite some time now. And it's good to see somebody who can take trauma and flip it on its ass. And, you know, you always carry the weight, but you're pleasantly optimistic on life. Seems like well, I, I've already hit rock bottom. So when, once you hit rock bottom, you got nowhere to go but up, you know, and, and I'm not going to sit here and pretend I did it by myself. I didn't. You know, I, I, I was blessed. I had the I had the right people in my world that that knew exactly. Sure, man. There's other rocks down there. That's how you know when you're rock bottom. That's what I call right. There's other rocks down there. That's what <laughs> ones you lean on to kind of push your way back up. It's the it's crazy because um yeah, fake it till you make it. Yeah, you learned that from us, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, but with the first responders and the police officers, man, that when they go into war every day in their own communities, I mean, the definition when we go into combat is dead. We're leaving something dead on the ground. The separation is that we go out of, out of the country to do our business, right? They send us over there. I mean, I mean, we avoid intersections. We we have intersections. We'll go way out of our way to avoid a certain intersection you know, or a house on the street, you know, yeah, that might be the shortest way to get there, but I don't want to drive through there. So I'll go around, you know, crazy because I don't want to go, I don't want to go by that building or intersection or whatever. Um, What's the best piece of advice that you can share with our listeners that you've taken from your experiences? Well, that's sound cliche, but never quit. <laughs> um, I mean, easier said than done. I, I would say that, like I, I said a little while ago, everything in life happens for a reason. And I walked away from this as I, as I wrapped up my book, you know, cause I did my journal, but I didn't know how to end the book. And so I asked myself, okay, now what, you know, I mean, how, what do I want people to take away from this? I had to figure out how to end my book. And I came to the conclusion that we all go through crap. I mean, it doesn't matter whether you're a veteran, a first responder, a, 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 a sex trafficking victim, a victim of domestic violence, or the clerk at the store that got robbed at, at, at gunpoint and tied up. I mean, everybody goes through something traumatic in their life at some point. And you can either let it break you or you can let it make you stronger. 
for me, I wanted to take my experiences and I wanted to teach others, um, help others with it because otherwise I went through all that shit for nothing. Right. And I feel like I don't want to in my life, you know, when I'm old and, and, you know, God willing die in my sleep, I don't want to, my life to be spent like, Oh, you know, poor Donna went through all this shit in her life. I would rather it be like, man, you know, she inspired me to go get the help I needed. I, I feel like life hands you, life hands you lemons and you make lemonade, right? I used to think that was such a stupid cliche. You it's know? brilliant. But it's true. It's brilliant cliche, actually. Yeah. It's like no matter what you get handed, you freaking turn around and make something good out of it. Exactly. If you had a lemonade exactly. stand, that'd be a great thing. You know, it's, all, it's like you can look at, you can automatically turn it around and look at your plight as something to go down, or you can take it and look at it as fuel to whatever it is you're going into. You're the one that was chosen to handle that responsibility. It's like with everything else we do. It's like, well, that's terrible. It's like, wow, would you want to do it? There's somebody you got somebody else in mind you want me to hand that over to because I'm sure they got something they're going to have to deal with. We all got to pull it. Yeah, yeah, and I think that. The, the, the feedback, you know, cause God, I'm not going to lie, man, putting my story out there. I was scared. Ah, it's pretty personal, right? Why? It's, it's awesome, man. I mean, going through it, it was supposed to be the scary part talking about it. That's why you go well, through it. Yeah. But there's some stuff in there. Oh. I'm, I'm no saint by a long shot, right? I'm not an angel. Uh, none is. of us are, but I mean, a sailor, remember. not saint sailor. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I put some really raw personal stuff in this book that I, out of respect for certain people I won't discuss in podcasts, but it's in the book. And I put myself out there and I know some are going to judge and that's, that's fine. They, they can judge. It's my life. And we all make mistakes and we all make decisions that we have to live with. But the thing is, is I, if I, if I thought in a million years, I'm the only person that's made some of these decisions or um, done some of these things, I, I, I know I'm not. So if, if I can inspire other people from learning, maybe from my mistakes, great. They won't have to take the same path I did. Or if somebody's going through a hard time and they are scared to get help and it inspires them to get help, great. It was worth it. Um, it's just that, but what I was going to say is I was, it was, I was scared to put it out there um, and held my breath for the reviews. I expected it to really be mostly read by female veterans, to be honest. But I have been amazed that the the reviews have been equally 50-50, both genders and, you know, both with incredible feedback. I've had some people tell me that their doctors who were prior first responders went on, you know, got out, became psychologists and whatnot, told me to, my doctor told me to read this. I mean, that was like, God, that was a huge compliment. But, um, but what I didn't expect was how many family members of veterans and first responders, it would help because it helped them understand what their loved ones were going through because their loved ones wouldn't talk about their traumas because they wanted to protect their families. And I thought about it. I'm like, yeah, that's true. Even my own mom told me she read the book twice. My mom hated reading. I got it from her. My mom told me that, oh my God, you know, as close as we were, she goes, I learned things about you. I never knew. Why didn't I know this? I go, mom, there's just some things that I just couldn't talk about, but I can, I can you give me a piece of paper and a typewriter <laughs> right? and I can tell you anything, 
You know, I can, it just, for me, I communicate much better through written word. It was easier for me to do it that way than it was to speak of it. So, um, but it, it really, I, the family members that have reached out and said, thank you, because now I understand my son or my husband or even my wife in a few cases, you know, it, now I understand better. And that, that's meant a lot to me. Well, how can people support you? Where can they get your book? All that good stuff. Well, um, my book is called Courageously Broken. They can get it on uh, through Amazon, Barnes & Noble, any of the, the online retailers. My website is www.courageouslybroken.com. Um, there's a link there. It'll take them to Amazon. We also have a store where we have designed, uh, we've got some challenge coins, t-shirts, hoodies, and some more cool stuff in development right now. I only do business with veteran-owned and operated businesses. So all of my merchandise comes from vet other veteran businesses, um, either out of Oklahoma, currently Oklahoma, most of Oklahoma and Mississippi. So, um, and I am looking for all kinds of new veterans to do business with. So if they've got a product out there that they'd like to put courageously broken or inspirational messages on, you know, please reach out to me. I'm, I'll be glad to list it on my website. Uh, 10%, um, as of right now, 10% of all my proceeds go to, um, a nonprofit organization there in Texas in Itasca called Good Canine Academy. Linda Conrad runs it. She, uh, is an incredible dog trainer. She specializes in training PTSD service dogs for veterans first responders. She's uh, currently trying to finish off her ranch with tiny homes. She'll, uh, you go out there, you stay on her ranch in one of her tiny homes and you bond with your dog for the week. And then you go home with your dog. And then there's obviously follow-up training after that. But Linda's incredible at what she does with these dogs. She's one of the top trainers in the world. She's licensed and certified so that you'll never have a problem getting on an airplane with your dog. She actually trains the airlines on their bomb dogs and she does it all. She's, she's incredible. So um, right now I'm helping to support her building, finishing off her ranch and her tiny home project. And, and my uh, good friend of mine, the wife of a, another veteran, we've known each other since Panama, been friends 30 years. She's now my vice president. And we're in the course now of becoming a nonprofit ourselves because I'm not in this for the money. I, I'm really not. I'm just trying not to go poor, <laughs> but I am giving away as much as I can. Um, my book actually at a recent veteran au auction that I donated, the book went for $4,000 at a veteran outdoors auction. Congratulations. And I gave, yeah. you know, so it's, I'm all about, I just, I just want to help people. It's all about the mission and the message. And, and so we're, like I said, we're in the course of trying to become a nonprofit ourselves. Well, we'll do what we can to support you always. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. Thank you, Donna, so much for joining us. It's been a, it's, uh, it's been, been a blast. my honor. I yeah. appreciate it, guys. This was fun. Dream come true, honestly. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah. I, that was awesome. Thank you so much. I've learned a lot. Well, if this episode impacted you today, make sure to share it with a friend. You can listen to the podcast anywhere you get podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, you name it, we're there. If you haven't already, follow us on social media, teamneverquit.com slash social. We'll see you guys next week. Later. Later.